This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, this morning we are going to wrap up this main body in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that goes back to about the middle of chapter 5. And, and at first, the passage this morning, if we're honest, it, it kind of sounds like a collection of unrelated sayings, doesn't it? It sounds like unrelated things as Jesus kind of begins to land a plane on the sermon, and it's kind of like, I got these things I got to get in before everybody leaves. I am just want to throw them in. It's kind of like I was talking with Pastor Rob. I was like, I think I'm just going to call this sermon three things about things that Jesus says, uh, kind of an anthology of sorts. You know, but after spending time in the text and studying this passage, I, I, began, to, I began to see something. I began to see that this is, in fact, three random unrelated things. It's three things about things. That's all it is. I wasn't finding anything. And so the second title I came up with was Dogs, Hogs, Prayer, and Gold. Because that's what it felt like. It felt like three passages on dogs and hogs, on prayer, and then this golden rule. But that didn't sit right with me. It felt like selling the text, selling you guys short. And so I kept reading. I kept wrestling with the text. And... What I, what I like to do is I like to be able to distill a passage and a sermon down to a single word. And the word that I found myself continually writing was the word humility. I mean, last week's passage, remember last week's passage was all about humility, wasn't it? About uh, confronting your own sin before you confront the sin of another. And that carries into this morning's passage, I think. Uh, pointing people to Jesus in humility, asking God for the things that we need, which requires humility, and then serving others, but serving without expectation, which can only be done out of humility. And so instead of dogs, hogs, prayer, and gold, we're going to call this morning's sermon, Walking in Humility. That's the title this morning, Walking in Humility. Because after all, we're on a journey, aren't we? Following Jesus is a journey, learning to live out the way of Jesus by listening to the words of Jesus. And this is a journey that is marked and shaped by humility. Because what I want us to see this morning is that faithfully following the way of Jesus is a journey of walking in humility. That's our big idea this morning. So faithfully following the way of Jesus is a journey of walking in humility. Humility, it shapes our being, who we are in Christ. It shapes our doing, what we do as followers of Christ. It shapes the way that we relate to ourselves, to God, and to each other. And it relates the way, or it, it shapes the way we respond to the circumstances and the situations that we face in life. And this morning's passage is going to help shape that by giving us three ways to walk in humility as we faithfully follow Jesus. Okay, so three ways to walk in humility. Number one is this. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write this down. It's share the gospel with humility. Share the gospel with humility. Let's see here what Jesus says in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Show of hands real quick. How many have heard a sermon from that verse? Okay, so we got four, we got five, okay. Most of us, probably not. That's just not one you go, you know what I really feel like preaching on is dogs and hogs today. And right about now, you're probably like, what do dogs and hogs have to do with sharing the gospel, Pastor Ash? I'm glad you asked, let me tell you. 
Well, when we think of dogs, what we think of is usually we think of Alice, don't we? Alice is our new, little, uh, our new little beagle that we adopted in December. She's about four and a half years old that we rescued from a, from a pharmaceutical lab. We, we think of dogs, we think of cute, cuddly dogs that curl up in your lap. But that wasn't a first century Palestinian dog. No, first century Palestinian dogs were scavengers. They, they roamed the streets, and instead of looking like Alice, they looked more like a pack of wild hyenas from the Lion King, okay? So these are the dogs that he's talking about right here. But not just that, hogs were different. Like, when he says hogs, we're not thinking of like Wilbur from Charlotte's Web. I mean, that's some pig, isn't it? You know? And he's not thinking about a future plate of bacon. That's some pig. No, they're, they're talking more like a wild Arkansas razorback that wants to like gorge you if you come across it in the middle of the day. These were, these were animals declared unclean by the Mosaic law. But not only that, we, we need to read the words of Jesus through the lens of the first century Jewish audience to which they were spoken to. See, these were derogatory terms used by most in reference to the Gentiles, in reference to pagans, those who rejected Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in a couple of chapters, in chapter 10, Jesus, he, he sends the 12 disciples out preaching and teaching and, and, and healing. And, and when he did, he specifically told them not to go to the Gentiles, not yet. Instead, he said first they were to go to the lost sheep of Israel to those who were actively anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, of the Christ, the arrival of God's kingdom and his anointed king. And as we see throughout the Gospels, it was only after Christ's resurrection, only after his ascension and the arrival of the Holy Spirit were they to take the good news of the Gospel to the Gentiles and take it to the nations. And so we need to like understand this immediate first century context in order to apply this to our modern day context. And so Jesus here, he, he's instructing his disciples, take the good news of the gospel, of God's, of God's kingdom and the reign of his king, this, this priceless treasure, this precious pearl, and share it with those who are most apt to receive that message, most apt to treasure its value and recognize its value yet knowing that some will reject it, that some will claim that Jesus and the gospel are of absolutely no value, and they'll simply spit it out at you. They'll spit it back at you. They will trample all over it and possibly even turn to attack you as a result of it. And so Jesus, he told his disciples in chapter 10 when he sent them out, he said, if someone is receptive to the gospel and what it is that you are sharing, he, he says, let your peace come upon them in their household. But if they reject you, if they won't listen to the gospel that, is, that you are sharing, he says, let your peace return to you and shake off the dust from your feet and leave and let them be. He's like, don't force it on them. And what Jesus is saying here, what he's saying to them, what he's saying to us is, is that when they reject the gospel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting the one who sent me. And Jesus knew that not just some, but that many would reject him. And he's simply preparing his disciples for that reality, and he's preparing us for that reality as well. And so, make no mistake, while we are called to share the gospel with everyone, amen? We are called to share with everyone. We should at the same time recognize that not everyone will receive this priceless treasure that we're sharing. Some will reject it. And I think that's humbling, isn't it? 
I think it's humbling because I think it reveals something. I think it reveals that your words, your words, no matter how intelligent, no matter how eloquent they may be, they do not have the power to save, do they? Only God's word has the power to save. But not only is that humbling, I think that's incredibly freeing. I think it's freeing because it means it is not your responsibility to save, is it? It's God's. But it is your responsibility to share, isn't it? And so here's how this works. You share, God saves, right? You share, God saves. Our responsibility is to share the good news of the gospel. God's the one who has the responsibility of saving. Paul, he explains it like this with, a, with kind of a, a farming illustration. It's been a couple weeks since we'd had a farming illustration. We were due for one, weren't we? Paul explains it like this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And what he's saying here is that our responsibility as followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to plant, to sow as much seed as possible, not in nice, neat rows. Don't worry about that. Just scatter that stuff. Everywhere you go, scatter that seed. Plant as much seed as possible, pointing people to Jesus, helping more people know about Jesus. But we're not just called to plant, we're also called to water, aren't we? We're called to water the seed that we've planted. We're called to water seed that others have planted, helping people grow to be more like Jesus and faithfully follow the way of Jesus. But I think what makes all of this so incredibly humbling is knowing that it is God who saves, that it is God who who gives the growth. But what makes it so encouraging is that God has chosen to do this in and through us, hasn't he? He's chosen it to do in and through us. And so some are going to receive what it is that we're sharing, not because of you, and some are going to reject it, also not because of you. And I think that humility should shape the way in which we share the gospel with others, sharing the gospel in humility. And so I want to give you some practical steps here real quick, uh, some things to do and some things not to do. And let's start with the things not to do. So real quick, if you're taking notes and writing the list, not to do is coming first, okay? Number one, please don't trick people into receiving the gospel. Don't trick them. Now, what do I mean by tricking them? If you invite your neighbors over for a barbecue and you like, we're just going to get together, we're just going to hang out, have some drinks, eat some pig... Um, Jesus made all animals clean for the new covenant. We can eat the bacon. It's good. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Don't surprise them with a sermon after the barbecue. Like, hear me. I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love Jesus more than anything. And I don't want to come over to your house and be given a bait and switch, okay? Don't trick people into receiving the gospel. Here's number two. Don't manipulate people into receiving the gospel. Don't manipulate people. And I think this is where the organized church has mastered this in some sense. Here's what I mean by it. We do this when we manufacture an environment where we're manipulating emotions. We know what we're doing. You get everything set just right to take you to this spot at this time. It was a production. We're guilting people into response at that point. Don't trick people. Don't manipulate people. Number three, don't force people into receiving the gospel, right? No, no force feeding of this good news. No, no shoving it down people's throats. And when I think of that, uh, what I think about, you ever heard of this dish called uh, foie gras? 
Yeah, I see some faces going like this. You know know what that is. So for those of you that don't know, let me explain it, and the people going like this are going to get more like this. So foie gras is is the fattened liver of, of a duck or a goose. And the way they do this is through a process called gavage. It's the French word for to gorge. And what they do is they force feed the animal just a few weeks before they butcher the animal. They shove a tube down its throat, down into its stomach, and they force feed the food all the way down into the stomach. And that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. And what he's saying is don't do that. Don't be force-feeding the gospel on someone because what they're going to do is they're going to spit it back at you. But when we, when we trick people, when we manipulate people, when we force the gospel on people, I think we end up doing more damage than good. Because I think what we end up doing when we do that is rather, rather than pointing people to Jesus, we're pushing people to Jesus, aren't we? We're pulling them, kicking and screaming. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, says, every attempt to impose the gospel by force, to run after people and proselytize them, to use our own resources to arrange the salvation of other people, to manipulate them, he says, is both futile and dangerous. He goes on to say, we shall only meet with the blind rage of hardened and darkened hearts, and that will be both useless and harmful. See, here's the thing. The gospel is an inherently offensive message to the world. Because the gospel says two things. It says that you are in need of a savior, that you are in need of being saved, and that you are incapable of saving yourself. That couldn't be any different, any further from the message of our world. It says that you needed another to do what you are incapable of doing. And so Jesus here is saying, let's not share an offensive gospel offensively. Let's share it in humility. Let's share it humbly. And so I think it ends up looking more like this, three things. Number one, share the gospel personally. Share it personally. Invite people into a relationship where they can begin to experience the gospel with you. And so, man, hear me, do invite your neighbors over for a barbecue. Do invite them over for lunch. Do invite them over for dinner. And get to know them. Get to know their, their name. Remember we got that phrase, new to you? It's, it's getting to know someone whose name you either don't know or you've forgotten once, twice, a hundred times. Get to know your neighbor's names. Get to know their families. Get to know their stories. Get to know how you can best love them and serve them and care for them and be there for them and spend time with them. And so begin by sharing personally. We need that relationship as a foundation. And then number two, share patiently. I share patiently. We're, We're playing the long game here, folks. We're playing the long game. You're very unlikely to change someone's life in a five-minute conversation. The chances are low. And they're even lower by changing it with five Facebook posts, just so you know. Talk about pushing people away. But you know what? Over the course of a five-year relationship, I think you're going to begin to have an impact on their lives. You're going to begin to be able to share it is what Christ has done to you. 
It's not five minutes, it's not five Facebook posts, but it can happen over the course of five years. We're playing the long game. And so let's stop approaching discipleship uh, like mass production because it's an individualistic thing. It's, it's one-on-one. Let's stop treating discipleship like, a, like an Instapot recipe and let's start treating it more like a slow cooker, amen? Let's, it's a slow cooker. Let's let this thing slowly simmer over time. And some people in your life, they're going to take two steps forward and three steps back and then four steps forward, and that's how it's going to go. And we are going to be there with them in each and every one of those steps, aren't we? Share personally, share patiently, and then share persistently. Share persistently, and that that begins by by praying, praying for opportunities to share, praying for God to open the door to share, and praying for the courage to step through the door and share. It means continually sharing, continually sowing seed, knowing that not every seed that you sow is going to sprout roots and grow. It means continually loving and watering that seed, knowing that that not every seed is going to grow at the same rate. I think we forget how incredibly slow our growth is. Our growth is measured over decades, not days, amen? Amen. And so let's not put that false expectation on someone else to sprout like that because the only thing sprouting in my garden like that is a weed. And we don't want any weeds. I'd rather take a big oak tree and continue praying. It begins with prayer and it continues with prayer, knowing that you may never see the growth from the seed that you scattered. You may never see the growth from seeds you watered. Someone else may be there in the time that that growth is harvested and it bears fruit. But I think that's what makes all of this so humbling. It's not about you, is it? It's about God. It's about sharing his good news with others so that they can glorify God. It's not about us, and that's humbling. But faithfully following the way of Jesus is a journey of walking in humility. So share the gospel with humility. Number two, pray to God in humility. All right, pray to God in humility. Let's see what he says here in verse seven and eight. Jesus, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. And I think we so badly want to believe those words of Jesus, don't we? I think we so badly want them to be true. I think... We want to live them out, but I think verses like this, I think they reveal that we don't believe them. I think our prayer reveals that we don't believe them. Because if we're honest, we don't live out these words, do we? We don't ask, we don't seek, we don't knock, because we don't believe the words of Jesus to be true. And I think there's two reasons for this. Number one, I think think we don't ask God. I think we don't come to God and ask and seek and knock because we don't want to trouble God, do we? And we don't ask God because we don't want to trouble God. Somewhere, somewhere along the way, we have been taught uh, either directly or indirectly that asking is selfish, haven't we? I mean, what's the phrase that we say every December? Tis better to, tis better to give than receive. Even Martin Luther, the great reformer, even Martin Luther, he spent over a decade in a monastery prior to the Reformation, and even Luther noted how he was never taught in the monastery to ask God in prayer. He prayed, but he was never taught to ask God in prayer. And I think think when it comes down to it, much of our view of God the Father 
I think it's formed by the relationship that we have with our parents, isn't it? Which is going to get real awkward if you're sitting next to mom or dad right now. It's formed by our relationship with our parents. And we, we look at our parents and it's easy. Like, they're always so busy. And I just, I don't want to trouble them, right? What, what I need is really not that big of a deal. I don't want to trouble them. And so, and then we, we portray that, we project that onto God. If this is how busy mom and dad are, God's got to be busier, right? God's the sustainer of the universe. That's got to take a little effort. And people have bigger prayers than mine. This is just, just a little one. You know, I'm, I'm going to step back. And we do. We begin to distance ourselves from God, don't we? We begin in that isolation. It, it turns us inward. And we rely on ourselves. And we can even begin to feel shame in this. Thinking, you know, I don't want to trouble you because I'm not deserving of your help, God. I'm not deserving of this. Someone else is far more deserving than me. And that's when our pride kicks in. In the midst of the shame, pride comes in and it teaches us, you know what, if I want something done, I should just do it myself. I shouldn't trouble others. I should just rely on myself. If you want something done right, do it yourself. But just as life has taught us that we're being selfish when we trouble God, I think life has also taught us to be skeptical of trusting God, hasn't it? And so the second thing is we don't ask God because we don't want to trust God. We don't ask him because we don't trust him. This is first, it sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? There's a few others like this. James says something. Jesus says something again. In John, similar to this, they all, they all sound too good to be true. So you're saying, Pastor Ash, all I got to do is ask God and I'll receive from God? I don't think so. I've asked him for a lot of things. I've asked for a lot of things and I don't have a lot of things. It's not working. You say, all I've got to do is look for something and God's going to help me find it? Yeah, I don't think so. For one, I couldn't find my keys when I left the house this morning. Number two, uh, I've been looking for a pair of mismatched socks for the last decade and I haven't found them. You guys know my infatuation with fun socks, right? I've got these neon pineapple socks that I don't, they're probably not even cool anymore because they are like a decade old. And that missing sock has gone into that portal that exists behind your clothes washer. Do you guys have that portal too? Yeah? There's a portal behind there where missing socks go. And so, Pastor Ash, are you saying that if I just ask God and ask Him to help me look for my missing pineapple, neon pineapple sock, He's going to help me find it? Because that ain't working. And He's saying, all I got to do is knock and God's going to open that door? Yeah, I don't know. I've been knocking on a lot of doors. And they're either not being opened or they're being slammed back in my face. And after a while, you just stop trusting God, don't you? Been let down too many times. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And that's when the pride kicks in again, and it teaches you to only trust in yourself. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this shame that exists in our heart. He knows that skepticism that exists in our minds. And so he follows this promise with an illustration to help us understand his words and truly believe his words. He goes on to say in verse, verse 9 and 10, he says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? My boys, Ethan and Sean, they're 10, and 10-year-olds are always hungry. Not most of the time hungry, they're always hungry. They're always wanting a snack. Even if we just finished dinner like five minutes ago, it's like, can I have a snack? No, you can have your dinner warmed up. That's what you can have. But... Um, I don't always give them a snack because Jill said I'm not supposed to always give them a snack. 
But you know what I don't give them? I don't give them a bag of rocks, ever. Could you imagine the dentist bill of feeding your kids bags of rocks? It's just logical that you wouldn't do it. And snakes, um, y'all know my feelings on snakes, right? If you're new, if you're a guest and you have no idea my feelings of snakes, read Genesis 3. Enough said. Didn't slither in as a cute little four-and-a-half-year-old beagle, did he? Nah, he slithered in as a serpent, as a snake. I, I, I scream like a six-year-old girl when I come across a snake. So if you hear something, that probably wasn't a tornado siren. That was just me walking in Bussy Woods, and I came across a snake. And so here's the thing. Even, my, even if my worst enemy asked for a fish, I'm going to do my best to live out the words of Jesus. I don't always, but I'm going to do my best to live out the words of Jesus and love my enemy. And at least... We lost it. I'm going to at least try and hand him some fish sticks from the freezer rather than a snake. Because y'all know I'm not even picking up that snake to hand him in the first place. But the point that he's making here is that even as imperfect parents, parents impacted by sin, in most cases, we love our children. We, we want what's best for our children. Even if we're unable to provide it, even if we don't know how to provide it, we want to provide it. But I say in most cases because I recognize that for some of you here this morning, that wasn't the case. Some of you I know had parents that withheld what was best for you. Some of you had parents who had a skewed view of what was best for you. Some of you never had a parent who was there to be troubled, whether they were at work all the time whether they abandoned you, whether they were constantly passed out and high, or whether they were just emotionally unavailable and unable to be there for you. And some of you had parents that couldn't be trusted. I think all of us as children, all we desire is just to be loved and cared for, to be loved by our parents. And yet, time and time again, we hear stories of parents who have beaten and abused their children some of you have experienced that physically, you've experienced that emotionally, you've experienced that spiritually. And man, if that's you, I just want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and that grieves God. It grieves me. But second, if that is your experience, I think it makes this next verse even harder to hear. I think it makes the words of Jesus hard to believe. But I need you to know that your experience doesn't lessen the truth of the words of Jesus, does it? And so listen to what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, it was only after the Reformation, it was only after the study of the doctrine of justification by faith that Luther came to see what an incredible gift it is to come to God in prayer and humbly ask God without inhibition. He, he says in his commentary on this passage, he says, Jesus, he knows that we are timid and shy. Jesus, Jesus knows that. He knows that we feel unworthy and unfit to present our needs to God. He knows that shame. And we think that God is so great and we are so tiny that we do not dare pray. And that is why Christ wants to, to lure us away from such timid thoughts, to remove our doubts, and have us go ahead confidently and boldly. 
And so even with imperfect parents, in most cases, at least they know how to give good gifts, even if they are unable, even if they're unwilling. But how much more will your loving Heavenly Father, who is both able and willing, who is both sovereign and faithful, able to give good things, not all things, not anything, not everything, but good things, not to those who have earned them, not to those who think they deserve them, but to those who simply and humbly Come to him and ask him, Abba, Father, help please. And this isn't because God doesn't know what you need. This isn't because um, God doesn't want to give this to you. It's not because God's waiting for you to give him a convincing argument of why it is that you need these good things. No, the reason, Pastor John Stott says, has to do with us, not with him, not with God. The question is not whether God is ready to give, but whether we are ready to receive, whether we are ready to humble ourselves and ask God and receive these good gifts from God. But I think we also need to see here, let's let's not pass up. He's not just giving us gifts, he's giving us good gifts. And Jesus here, he's not promising to give you everything. He's promising to give you the good things the way that God defines good, things that God values as good. And so as kids, what was our favorite food growing up? And probably still to this day, especially in Chicago, it is it's pizza. If kids had their way, they would eat pizza every night. I think they'd have it breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Cheese pizza every day. They might switch up deep dish and thin crust, but it's cheese pizza all day, every day. Most Fridays, Jill makes uh, homemade pizza. And uh, we sit down and we watch that week's episode of whatever the latest Star Wars or Marvel movie was on Disney+. And hear me when I say this, uh, Jill's homemade pizza is a good gift from God, from which we give amen. And we sing the doxology before we eat it. (laughs) Praise God from... No, we don't, but we should, because it's true. But you know what we're not doing? We're not having pizza every night. Because that wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good for my 10-year-old boys growing up, and it wouldn't be good for me in this region of my body right here. I am going to start on vacation this week, and I'm going to start back on paleo after vacation. Tim Keller, he writes in his book on prayer that God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knew. I think that's part of what it means to pray to God in humility. Understanding what God values is good. Having the humility to ask for the wisdom to know and a heart that desires what is in fact good. And that comes from abiding in God's presence. It comes from spending time with God, spending time with God in his word and spending time with God in prayer. Because as Jesus, as he tells his disciples in John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. All you have to do is ask and seek and knock. Because see, as parents, as parents, we don't expect our children to be able to do everything on their own. Your parents didn't expect you to be able to do everything on your own. I don't expect Ethan and Sean to be able to drive themselves to their baseball games and to baseball practice. I don't expect them to do that. What I do expect them to do is to ask me to drive them there. I want them to ask me to drive them there because I want to be there. And that level at which I love my boys 
That level at which I want to be intimately involved in every aspect of their lives, it is but a fraction of the love that your heavenly Father has for you, his child, his son, his daughter. And it is but a fraction uh, of how God wants to be intimately involved in your life. He's there, standing there, waiting with arms wide open for you to come to him and run to him, to trouble him when you need him, to trust him when you need him, to seek him, to find him, to knock on his door 24 hours a day. He's never too busy for you. He's never too far from you. He wants you to come. He wants you to ask. He just wants you to come and say, help, please. And that requires the faith of a child, doesn't it? It requires us to humble ourselves. And understand, as the old hymn says, that we miss out on so much when we don't, do we? We miss out on so much that is good when we, hum- when we fail to humble ourselves and come to God. The hymn says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because why? We do not carry everything to God in prayer. And T. Wright wrote, for most of us, the problem is not that we're too eager to ask for the wrong things. I think most of us, we've learned enough Christianese. We've been to church enough times. You know, there's certain things we probably shouldn't ask for. We get get that part. He goes, no, the problem is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. We're not eager enough to trouble God. We're not eager enough to trust God. And that's humbling because faithfully following the way of Jesus is a journey of walking in humility. And the third and final thing I want us to see here is to serve others out of humility. Serve others out of humility. I think, I think we get the first two words. I think we get the serve others part. It's the out of humility part that I think we miss. Let's read verse 12 here. I think we probably have all heard this one a time or two. He says in verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Nearly everyone knows this verse known as the golden rule, but uh, do you, anybody know how the golden rule got its name? I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. Early third century Roman Empire, uh, Emperor Alexander Severus, he was a pagan. This was prior to Christianity overtaking the Roman Empire. He was so impressed by the sayings of this Jewish rabbi, this man from a couple hundred years ago named Jesus and his ethic. His ethic, his, his love for people, it was, it was so foreign to them that he had this message inscribed on his chamber wall in gold, hence the golden rule. But the danger of a verse like this, a danger of a verse that we think we know so well is that oftentimes we don't truly know what it means. I think it's easy to read this and think he's calling us to serve others so that... They will then serve us in return. And that couldn't be any further from what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing, he's actually taking a a somewhat well-known phrase and he's flipping it upside down, a phrase that we see in in the Jewish book of Tobit that reads, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. And at first they sound the same, don't they? But I don't think they could be any different. See, this here, this is a negative proverb of self-preservation of what not to do, one that separates us and isolates us from one another, seeking our own well-being and defending ourselves from others. 
But what Jesus says in verse 12, the the words of Jesus, they call us to seek the well-being of others, giving ourselves to others. And that unites us rather than separates us. And he's, he's not calling us to do this in hopes of a response, but as a response. Not so that others might serve us in return. There is no quid pro quo here. There is no keeping score. There is no tracking the debt that others owe. No, Jesus here, he's not so much describing what it is we are to do, but how it is we are to do it. We are never to selfishly serve. We are never to simply phone in our service for others. No, we are to give our best. We are to give our all. Because that's exactly the way Jesus served us, isn't it? Jesus gave us his all. Jesus gave us his life. John says, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for others. Right? Jesus, he is calling us to live a life of love, of selfless, sacrificial service to others, of loving like Jesus. Because all the law and the prophets, this entire sermon... It can be distilled down to a single command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. But not only can it be distilled to a single command, it can be distilled to a single word and that word, church, is it's love. Love. So he's not calling us to respond to the needs of others in hopes of a response, but as a response. He's not calling us to love in hopes of being loved, but into response to the love that God has shown us, love that he displayed for the world to see on the cross. Because you cannot show love that you have not seen. You cannot reflect love you have not received. Love is the fulfillment of the law. It is the fulfillment of the prophets. Love is why Jesus came, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who shall ever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Love that required humility. Humility that the world had never seen. As the son of God, the one who was in the beginning with God, as God, he became flesh and he dwelt among us humbling himself by becoming obedient to the point of death through the most humiliating death, imaginable death on a cross. But that is the way of Jesus. And faithfully following the way of Jesus is a journey of walking in humility. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.